Well, good morning, Harvest Community Church. Um, we only have one announcement for today, uh, and, and it's funny, we record this Thursday. Uh, we're planning to have our first outdoor service Sunday, uh, but the weather is, is pretty up in the air, so uh, as you're watching this, I don't know if, if, if we're going to have service outside or not, so maybe everybody's watching this, maybe it's just some of you, but either way, um, we're grateful that we can uh, still do this. Um, even with uh, coronavirus stuff going on. Um, so next week's outdoor service, um, we're planning uh, for one service. Uh, we need you to RSVP if you want to come to that. Um, so if that fills up, then we'll add a second service. But th this week we kind of ended up doing it backwards. We planned for two, realized we actually only needed one. So, so next week, um, I, I think Sunday, uh, today, you'll get the, the email uh, to RSVP if you want to come to the outdoor service for next week. And we really need you to uh, let us know by Wednesday what you're planning. That would really help us out. Well, uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 21 uh, today. Uh, let me pray and then uh, we'll dive right in. Jesus, uh, I am so grateful that, that we can know you, that, that you died uh, in our place, that you took on the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. Uh, you are our substitute um, so, so that we can have life in you. And I thank you for your word that uh, just all over the place points to you. Jesus, I thank you for how First and Second Samuel have just continued to point us to you. And uh, we know that this passage today does that as well. And we, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you'd speak through me, that you'd help us to concentrate even while uh, listening and watching through a screen. I pray that our attention would be on you and your word. And, and I, I pray that, that you would, um, uh, that, that the truth of your word uh, would just penetrate our hearts and, and our minds and that we would live in light of your word. Uh, so God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we uh, can devote this time um, uh, together. I mean, even though we're separate, but, but at the same time, focus on you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, our truth statement today is uh, to satisfy God's wrath against sinners. Either a representative substitute must die in a cursed death or sinners must bear the king's judgment. To satisfy God's wrath against sinners, either a representative substitute must die in a cursed death, or sinners must bear the king's judgment. Right, And that doesn't sound like a happy truth statement. We start right off with wrath, but, but it is. It is joyful that, that we can have a substitute die for us, that, that Jesus ultimately was, was the one. And, and that's really what I want you to understand is you need a substitute to die in your place for your sin. 
So we, we jump into chapter 21. There's, we're told there's been three years of famine. And we don't know exactly when the famine occurred. Um, scholars agree, for the most part, I think, that, that it happened at least after 2 Samuel 9. Um, but we don't know exactly when this happened in David's reign. We just know that, that it was during David's reign. And chapters 21 through 24, and 24 is the end of, of uh, the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 21 through 24, um, they're an epilogue to the books of Samuel. Um, they look over all of David's reign and, and even before David's reign. So the chapters aren't laid out chronologically, um, they're thematic. Uh, so we, uh, when we look at them, we see themes in this mirror image. So the beginning of chapter 21 mirrors chapter 24. And, and there's, uh, the, the theme is there's this problem in David's kingdom. And it's the wrath of God. Um, then 21, 15 through 22 mirrors uh, chapter 23, 8 through 39. And we call this the strength of David's kingdom, his mighty men. And then in the middle, chapter 22 mirrors 23, 1 through 7, the hope of David's kingdom, kingdom the, the promise of the Lord. Now, if you're like me and you're kind of skeptical, you maybe think, all right, that's cool. There's a pattern, but so what? Well, look at the middle, right? Look at what the pattern is pointing us to. It's like this giant flashing sign saying there is hope, right? On the outsides, it's God's wrath, but in the middle, there's hope. There's hope that's found in the promise of God. Church, do you realize that that's the only hope that we ever have? Right? For every problem, every difficulty, every challenge finds the only hope in Jesus. So today um, we get to go through a, another really hard story in Scripture. Uh, there's a biblical scholar named Peter Williams and he says this. He says, I don't know of any national literature that says as much negative about the people it comes from as the Old Testament. Right? We just, it's not a filtered view that we get of Israel. We see all of the warts, all of, of the darkness, in uh, all the evil in this people. Uh, and, and we've been waiting through now for several chapters of 2 Samuel. It, it just feels like one downer after another as we see how destructive sin is. It feels like we've been hanging out with, with Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh for weeks now. All of this destructiveness though, it helps us see that we need saving from the problem of sin, that we need saving from the enemy of death. We, we know that even a really great human leader, right? even the greatest king falls woefully short. We need God to save us. So today begins with a look at another problem, right? that, that there's wrath, that sin deserves wrath. And right now, uh, in our current uh, culture, in our country, uh, there's a louder cry than normal for justice. Right? And it's, it is right to want justice. That's a, that's a uh, reflection of a, a godly thing. Uh, as a Christ follower, we know that 
full justice, true justice would mean that we face the wrath of God. And I don't want that. Uh, I do not want what my sins deserve. I want mercy. Uh, I'm very happy that Jesus died in my place as a substitute on the cross to atone for my sin. So you might think you want justice, um, and the reality is we don't even grasp justice like God does. God is perfectly just. So back to the situation. Three years, there's been a famine. Again, this isn't in chronological order. We don't know when this took place in David's reign. It has to be after chapter 9, which is where Mephibosheth uh, comes into the picture when, when Saul searches for a son of Jonathan um, to, to bless, to make sure he's okay. Um, so the, we don't know the timing, but that isn't important. Um, what we focus in here on is, is that this is a really, really hard time in the land. Crops failed. People are desperate because they're so hungry. And here's David the king. Right? The great leader of Israel, and yet he is powerless. He can't make it better. So we're told that David prays. And maybe he'd, he'd been praying throughout this entire famine. We don't know. But we're told by the narrator that, that at this point he prayed. It says he sought the face of the Lord. Right? This is the king of Israel seeking audience with the king of kings. The people have been suffering through this famine. David comes before the Lord. I imagine he goes to the tabernacle to pray. And we know what it's like to pray about something uh, or to, to wait to pray about something until it's really difficult. Right? We seem to give God our attention really well when life is hard. And God's made it this way, that, that, that difficulty, that suffering would wake us up and remind us that we need God. There are people who normally want nothing to do with God who will turn to God when they're at the end of their rope. And this is, this is a reminder, this is a sign of God's grace to us because God is what we need more than anything else. We're great at fooling ourselves that we need this thing or that thing, but God will, will let us or, or he'll even take us to the end of our rope and remind us that we're incapable of saving ourselves. We can't fix ultimately what is broken. We need him. And I could go on and on and on, but, but let's not waste our trials. Let's not waste our suffering. God wants to use them for his glory and for, for your benefit. C.S. Lewis said this and maybe... You've heard it before. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. David knew he needed God in this. So he prays and God immediately answers. He tells David that there is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And if you're like me, you hear Gibeonites like, oh, I know that name, right? And you're thinking, oh man, didn't they do that one thing? But, but you can't really remember what that one thing is. But you actually do know the Gibeonites. Way back in the book of Joshua, chapter 9, they saw Israel coming into the land. And Israel's just defeating power after power. 
And, and Gibeon's looking at themselves going, we don't see a chance. So they come up with this sneaky, smart little plan, right? They, they put on old, worn-out sandals. They, they fill their bags with like old, hard, moldy bread. They've got old wineskins that are, are just tattered. And they come to Israel and they trick Israel into, into thinking that, it, that they'd come from this faraway, distant land and that there's no need to worry about little old us. And they convince them to make a covenant with them. Well, they make the covenant and then Israel discovers uh, these guys aren't from a far distant land. They just lived around the block, but they'd already made the covenant with them to not harm them. So they have to stick to this covenant before the Lord. Well, years later, King Saul, he tried to wipe them out. Every last one of them, breaking the promise that God's people had made. So God tells David, this famine is because of that. Now, don't, I don't want you to develop a theology that like every natural disaster is because one person sinned against someone else. That's not the point of the story. But, but sin, as we've seen, it is destructive. And what's important to understand is God's the one saying this is why this has happened. God's the one that saw Saul's sin this way. He judged it as wrong. And now the family of Saul, as well as the nation of Israel, was suffering the wrath of God because of Saul's actions. Sin is an offense. It's an offense against God. But God is just. He does not just look the other way. He doesn't miss a sin. He, he, he punishes sin as it deserves. And David knew this. The Lord, uh, the Lord doesn't tell him what to do about it, but, but he told him what the cause was. And David decides that he's going to go consult the Gibeonites. He's going to um, consult the victims, acknowledging that Saul had broken this oath. So in verse 3 of chapter 21, and David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? He knew that atonement needed to be made. And he was trying to make amends for the wrong that was done to them by Saul. And I'll spare you all the details of the conversation, but in the end, uh, they, they end up agreeing on giving seven sons of Saul, it's actually two sons of Saul and five grandsons, to the Gibeonites to be killed. They, they were hung. So before the sons are killed, though, we, we read this detail in verse 7 uh, that David spared Mephibosheth, son of Saul. Um, it says, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, uh, uh, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, that's a mouthful, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So well, we, we remember, we, we've just been told, Saul breaks an oath, but, but David honored an oath. And then verse 8 tells us that um, the mother of the two sons uh, is a woman named Rizpah. Her sons would have been Jonathan's half-brothers, one of which is named Mephibosheth. Uh, and we, we aren't told why Jonathan named his son Mephibosheth after his brother Mephibosheth, but it kind of makes you wonder what, what the relationship may have been like there. But these sons, uh, these two sons and five grandsons are killed in Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. Uh, that was certainly on purpose. And then we're told that it was at the beginning of the harvest. So sometime in April, this takes place. But then what, what happens next 
uh, really helps drive home the pain of uh, what happened, the, the consequences of Saul's destructive action. Uh, Rizpah, the mother of the two sons, um, she, she takes a cloth and she lays it out. Maybe it's to lay on. Maybe at times it was to shade herself from the sun. But she lays it out and then she goes on to guard her son's bodies. And during the day, she protected their bodies from the birds. And at night, she protected them from the beasts. And she started doing this in April and she continued until the rain fell. Now, we're not told when the rain came. Uh, the normal time that the rain would come would be as late as September or even October. Um, the rain coming would certainly, uh, it, it would be viewed by the people that, man, God is, is ending the famine. The punishment is over. Uh, the, the curse that was on the land has, has, has been removed by, by the sons as a, who are the substitute. They paid with their lives. So we don't know if it was all that time before the rain came. Maybe it was only weeks. But either way, my guess is you can place yourselves in Rizpah's shoes, this grieving mother, and it's heartbreaking. Well, David, he found out uh, what she was doing, and he was moved by her actions. And my guess is that knowing that these bodies uh, of these uh, young men were out there exposed reminded him of Saul and Jonathan, their deaths, and how the Philistines exposed them. They'd hung them up on the wall for all of the Philistines to see and celebrate the victory that they had over uh, Israel's king and his son. Well, David, he goes and he retrieves the bones of Saul and Jonathan and, and takes those bones along with the bones of the seven sons that were killed and he buries them, right? He's, he's showing them all honor. And verse 14 says this, They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of ben Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And the end of that verse, God responded to the plea for the land. The, the, the very end of this book, chapter 24, will echo that that God would respond to the plea, that he would heal the land. But both Rizpah and David honored these men that had died um, really in, in, a, in a beautiful way. Um, but it doesn't take away how gruesome this whole scene is. Right? This is a hard story in Scripture. I mean, it starts off just with the... Uh, the, the brutal nature of a famine, right? The people are starving in the land and, and there, there must have been parents unable to provide for their own kids. And, and I'm sure as a parent, as painful as it would, it would be physically to not eat, to starve, it'd be even worse to know the pain that your kids are going through and not able to save them. So there, there are people starving to death in the land and then we learn about Saul decimating the Gibeonites. And we don't have the details, but it's safe to guess that it was gruesome. And then the execution of these two sons of Saul and five grandsons. And we see Rizpah's deep grief. And this is just a hard, hard story. Well, a few observations. Um, one is sin never just impacts the person that sinned. 
Even even when you feel like your sin wasn't against another person, the impact of sin reaches further than you would ever guess or imagine. And I'm not going to camp on that, but but sin, it's never just in this little bubble. The the reach is always so much further than we would know. The second is that God is just. There is... There is a payment that will be made for sin. Um, There's no sins that escape God's notice. Uh, When we see someone else sin, we want justice. I was at a Nike store in Portland months ago now, and we had just paid for our shoes, our clothing. We're walking, we're making our way to the door, and just then a few people, two people I think, went by with stacks of shoes and clothes and they're running out the door and the security guard is is radioing it in and I'm walking out and I have like this 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 moment where I picture myself like running and like hunting them down and tackling them and, and retrieving the the shoes and the clothes and like making the citizens arrest and then by the time I was done imagining that they were totally gone but we we want justice right when we see someone do something wrong we want justice but when when it's us right when we when we realize that we've done wrong man we want mercy we do not what want what we deserve and this this story if we're paying attention it points us to the gospel it makes me think of Romans 5 6 through 11 for while we were still weak At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus is the one who came to save us from the wrath that sin deserves. He's died as our substitute. Romans 3.25 tells us that God put forth Jesus as the propitiation, right? The the wrath-satisfying atonement for our sins. So we leave the the story of these sons dying, and and obviously we don't feel good about it. I mean, God heals the land. We we love that that happened. Um, But but we look at it and go, man, is is this what justice is? But we know there, there had to be atonement. David knew that. There needed to be atonement. We see these seven sons, and what they do is they die as a substitute. Jesus' death in our place was totally sufficient to save us from sin. When we place our faith in Him, we can trust that Jesus died in our place. There had to be a payment for sin. Either you pay or a substitute pays in your place. It is really easy for me to forget what I've really been saved from. That, that apart from Jesus, I would need to face the wrath of God for my sin. So we shift now to the second part 
of uh, chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. And recall, we recall that David was a great, mighty leader, right? There was incredible strength in David, in his kingdom, in his military. As soon as he comes onto the scene, uh, Israel has great victories because of him. I mean, it's because the Lord is with him. The, the, the scripture is really clear about that. But, but they have great victories because of David. David's might and victories early on in the book help us anticipate Jesus, our King, who gives us victory over enemies way greater than the enemies that David defeated. And now, in chapter 21, the second part, we get snapshots of uh, the strength of David's kingdom. Um, but first, we see that David is weakening. And you expect this, right? Some of you, many of us can relate to this. Your body cannot do right now the things that not that long ago it could do. You're slowing down. And, and David, the mighty warrior, is slowing down. Verse 15, there is war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines and David grew weary. David's capacity is limited. He's always had weaknesses, but now his weaknesses are more obvious. He's vulnerable. The next verse tells us that in this war, David comes up against a man that's described as descending from the giants. But this is no Goliath, right? This isn't Goliath 2.0. We're told that the weight of his spear is about eight pounds, and that's only half of the weight of Goliath's spear. So while this is a mighty foe, it's not like this is a giant bigger than David had faced in Goliath. But this man, he, he, he wanted to kill David. But Abishai comes to the aid of David and takes out this giant for David. And that's great. In my imagination, stuff like that happens all the time in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You're in trouble. Your buddy from Israeli boot camp notices. He comes over, saves you, and no big deal. But the second half of verse 17 tells us that actually this was a big deal. David, uh, by God's power, he used to take on enemies of his, his own, and now he was in need of help. So the second half of 17 says, Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So the king didn't make this decision. Now he was told by his men, you're not coming out to battle with us anymore. He was not the warrior that he once was. And if he died, this would be a huge deal to Israel, right? He's only their second king, but even with all his faults, he is way better than the previous king. And history would show really that he's the best king they, they ever had. The last phrase, it says, lest you quench the lamp of Israel, it helps us really grasp the significance of David to the people. David came and he brought light to all this darkness that Israel was in. In the next chapter, in chapter 22, David will describe God as the lamp. And here his men, they call him the, the lamp to Israel. 
They're saying, without you, David, we will be in darkness. Well, in verse 18, uh, briefly tells us about another battle with another giant that's taken out by one of David's men. Verse 19, yet another giant defeated by another of David's men. So in verses 18 and 19, uh, again, we have victory, but David's nowhere to be found. He's not there. His men won't let him be there. Verse 20, we hear about the fourth giant. And this one had extra digits. He's got six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. And you can imagine how crazy that would be, as if a giant warrior isn't intimidating enough. And you know he's an angry, angry giant, right? He's got to have all this pent-up rage from when kids teased him when he was little. But David's brother's son, I should have said David's nephew, uh, took down this giant. And it's interesting Right? His brothers were all passed up by Samuel. When Samuel was supposed to, uh, to anoint the king, he looks through the sons of Jesse and passes over every one of them. And, and here, David's nephew, right, son of one of his brothers who was passed up, not the Lord's chosen, uh, he's the one that defeats the, the giant. David isn't even allowed to fight. And then the chapter ends. Verse 22, it says, These four were descended from the giants in Gath, They fell by the hand of David and by the hands of his servants. Each of these victories came in the name of David, but David was too vulnerable to be in the battle. He was too weak. He wasn't even at these battles. David gets credit here, but it's clear that the victory came by the hands of his men. How different it is with King Jesus that David points to. Jesus is not absent. We have victory in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus who has gone out and fought the battle for us. Our king doesn't get credit because of us. We get credit because of him. David's men were afraid of David dying and the lamp of Israel being quenched. Jesus, however, is the light of the world. Jesus' light will never be quenched. They were trying to keep David, their lamp, going as long as possible. We have no fear of the light of Jesus being snuffed, no matter how bad the world gets. And the Bible's pretty clear, the world will get worse, but the light of Jesus will never be snuffed. John 1, 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came to live the sinless life that we are incapable of living. And then he died as our substitute, the death that we deserved to die so that we can be set free from sin and death if we place our faith in Him. I love uh, Romans 8.1, and we'll close with it. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll, 8.1 and 8.3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh we do not have to face the wrath of god because jesus died as our substitute and if you have not yet trusted in jesus i just ask you why not why wouldn't you want to trust in jesus to take on the the wrath of God, to take on your sin so that you can be made right with Him, so that you can be reconciled with the King. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, we thank You um, 
this side of the cross, we thank you uh, that you died in our place. Lord, we thank you that, that these stories, even really, really hard stories, do such a great job of pointing us to our need for you. And, and Lord, our, our world needs you desperately. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people that are ready to talk about you, to share about the hope that we have in you, to, to share about why sin is so destructive, Lord. God, will we be a people that, that are faithful to proclaim how good you are? Would we be light in this dark, dark world? God, would, would you use us to bring the gospel to people that desperately need to hear it? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this week uh, for music, Matt Eldridge is actually leading us with a band. Uh, so you can look for the link either below uh, this video or at the end of the video. I look forward to seeing you soon.